performance anxiety. This show features John Aniello. You might not recognize the name, but you sure know the work. He's had a hand in albums by Mark Lanigan, Dinosaur Jr., Cindy Lauper, Kurt Vile, The Hold Steady, Sonic Youth, Waxahachie, Drive-By Truckers, and that just scratches the surface. He tells me how his older brother, Tony, got him into music, the differences between recording, mixing, and mastering engineers, and how to work with an Olympic snowboarder. He's got his own podcast called Gear Club Podcast that's almost as fun to listen to as this one. John's full of stories about working with some incredible artists. Check out his podcast and his credits. Follow him on Instagram. Follow us at Performance ANX and subscribe, rate, review, and share. I hope you enjoy this chat with John and Yellow as much as I did. Hey, everybody. This is John and Yellow, producer, engineer. Um, I've been known to work with bands such as Dinosaur Jr., Kurt Vile, The Drive By Truckers, The Whole Steady. Phosphorescent, Jessica Lee Mayfield, Waxahachie. Anyway, I just want to welcome you to this episode of Performance Anxiety. I'm the guest, and it's been a pleasure being on the podcast. Is that good? Uh, my wife just walked by. My wife's actually, it's funny because I had to move all my equipment downstairs to, to do all this. I usually have it up in my room, and my wife's working from home now, so she's on the phone. She works at a call center for a, a bank. And so oh, wow. she's on the phone all the time. So I had to move everything downstairs. So I just right. saw her walk downstairs. So that was unusual. She, yeah. Get back to work. You're the only one making an income right now. Yeah. Yeah. So well, Sharon, works. We, we moved down from New York, New Jersey in 20, August of 2018. And Sharon works from home anyway. Oh, okay. So she, she has, um, she manages the band Sunvolt. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with yeah. them. Yeah. 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 That's how I met her in 99. Oh, cool. And, and she also met, met, uh, manages Greg Calby, the mastering engineer. Okay. He's like an old school, famous guy. And then she has two other jobs that she she runs an office for um, um, a, a non-for-profit uh, um, education policy group. And uh, she manages a couple of um, makeup artists for like Nicole Kidman. But those, you know, like Sunvolt, obviously with the climate not really working and and the makeup artists aren't working, so she's concentrating on these two main things she does, yeah. which is, you know, I mean, she's in the group. She's in her office all day. You know what I mean? And she yeah. just does it. I mean, you know, she takes her breaks. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about working from home, as you know, is, you know, if you're on a roll and it's 7 o'clock, you just keep working. Yeah. You know, you come out of your office at 8 and then think about dinner. You know, you can you can have to be more productive. Yeah. Know? It, it's a lot better, for, you know, with with my wife. You know, she's got to be, you know, she's got to be on the clock and off the clock, and when they tell her to be. Right. And, uh, I I actually work. I I can't work from home. I, I do. Uh, I work for a medical device company. And, oh wow. Uh, yeah, and, and it's uh, I'm I'm more in the inspection side of parts, but um, yeah. So so I can't do my job remotely. I've got to be on the floor. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately for right now, this is you know just a. You're essential. That's essential. Yeah, that's that's the sadness of it. I've, that's the, the first time my company has ever considered me essential. So. <laughs> yeah. You are essential. I I was uh, uh two week two weeks ago I was doing some uh, mixing down here at a friend of mine's studio, and um, it's basically part of the building that my buddy Bo 
um, Taylor, who was in a couple of bands I worked with, you know, years ago, years, years, years ago. And, uh, he, he, it's his like, uh, um, um, woodworking company and, you know, they do, they're, they're, they're deemed essential. And he popped in for like five minutes to talk to me while I was mixing. And, um, I said, yeah, you, you, I hear all you guys next door working and, you know, you guys are essential. And he was like, yeah, I can't believe it. I was like, you know, I've, nothing I've ever done has ever been deemed essential. Yep. <laughs> Same here. Same here. If I go and I, if, if I go in for a raise and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty essential. Like, you're not. Okay. Thanks. Oh, God. I'm essential enough to get a little slip of paper to keep in my car so I don't get stopped by the cops. But <laughs> when it comes to money, nah, you're not that essential. Right. So yeah. funny. Oh, awesome, um, awesome. I love the Lanigan one, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it really was great. I, I listened to that like the day it came out. Oh, awesome. And um, I forwarded it on all the social media because I thought it was really good. Thank you. And I mean, he's so great. I mean, I, you know, I have this um, not really a love-hate relationship with him because despite everything we went through together, I never really hated him. Right. I was in awe of him. Like he was one of my, one of my not first because I worked with some really amazing singers in the eighties, but like in the nineties, he was one of my first, like in awe, like, how does this guy sing like this? This is giving me chicken skin, Yes, you know, recording the vocals and my, you know, my skin on my arms is tingling and I'm like, fuck, 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 fuck. You know, shit like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, That's what I felt when the first time I heard him, I was just, I, I wish my, I get a little bit of Lanigan in my voice. Cause I hate my voice. <laughs> I think yeah. it's awful. Yeah, yeah. So, He's funny also because I seem to remember that at least on one of the solo records, and maybe it was field music or whatever record it was, I remember when it was time for him to actually do vocals. That, Or maybe, yeah, I think it might have been that one. But um, I think he ramped up the cigarettes. Like he started smoking a shitload. Oh, wow. To get his voice all raspy. Now, I could be wrong. I'm, I seem to remember an instance where he was like, yeah, I got to start smoking on the smoke. Or, 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 you know, <laughs> oh, that's fucking a commitment. That you know? is, man, that, that's, that's a commitment to your art right there. Jeez. Yeah. And, but it doesn't yeah. surprise me. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. he, he was, I, I honestly, I was really surprised he agreed to come on. Cause yeah, well, uh, it was, and it yeah. was to me that that was the kind of guy I wanted. It was my hundredth episode. And yeah. I wanted something a little, special for that so yeah no that, that like that was a total get you know for yeah. me i was like it's fantastic and and he's great the interview is great so it's even more of a get you oh, know what man. i mean I, what was it like an hour and 20 minutes or something yeah it was but, oh there's my dog barking but i that's right i but i think it's um but i think it's like there's really no dead space in the thing at all oh, like man. i i started listening at like 10 o'clock in the morning and then just basically list, I carried around with me through the house, did stuff, and then just at eleven twenty, it was like that was fantastic. We had a lot of fun in the nineties, me and him, especially on the on the whiskey record. I mean, it was there was all kinds of shenanigans going on. Like we would go out all the time after work, and you know we did a lot of work. We got a lot of work done. We did really great. We finished the record, and um, but you know we'd be in cabs in Manhattan, going downtown to meet people and. You know, there were the ruckuses at Max Fish, you know, the yeah. fight. Like, it was just chaos. So, but we had a great time. And, you know, the next day, at, you know, 11 o'clock, we showed up at the studio and we, we worked on the record. So that's that yeah. whole story about him taking the real uh, the, the masters down to the 
Creek. Yeah, and- that was, yeah, that was with uh, Jack and Dino, and yeah. that's typical. I mean, uh, yeah, that doesn't shock me. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get into music in the first place? Were you were you playing instruments at all, or did you ever get into being in bands? No, my oldest brother Tony um, is ten years older than me, and um, he was on music for me growing up. And um, ba- like basically growing up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, my parents were immigrants. My father was totally an immigrant, like you know, spoke broken English and worked in longshoreman. My mom was born in the Lower East Side, but my grandmother was an immigrant on her side, and. Um, you know, they were interesting because they raised like hippie sons. They didn't, we didn't speak Italian. My oldest brother, Tony, looked like he could have been in the Mothers of Invention. You know, we went on to get an electric engineering gig, uh, a degree in, in CCNY, and then ended up being like a, a Grammy Award winning um, design engineer for digital technology at a company called Eventide. Okay, yeah. So he was a big um, inspiration in my life. But, um, I grew up basically listening to music he um, listened to, like, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. And then it got me into music in a sense where I became like the next generation of him. Okay. Sorry. No problem. <laughs> oh, it's music. Let me just do Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, hey uh, I'm doing a podcast. You want to get in? <laughs> this is Kara. Hi. What's up? Hi. Nice to meet you. Can I face you? Yeah. Okay. Happy birthday. Thank you. My friend Kara's birthday. She manages um, the Nude Party, which of this fantastic young band on New West, and um, this woman Liz Cooper, who's a great singer, like just fantastic. So she's real super young. I know her for years. But anyway, um, so back to my growing up thing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, anyway, so so honestly, I learned a lot from my brother. And then when I got old enough to be like 16 or 17, I uh, started working at that company, even tied like in the summers, made money and was able to buy my own stereo and stuff like that. So um, like I remember buying Queen 2 when it came out yeah. as a kid, went downstairs, got a little high and then basically put on headphones and listened to like the black side. You know, you know, which starts with the backwards drums and all that shit. And then it turns around like it. And I looked at the the credits and I was like, Roy Thomas Baker. Hmm. Okay. And then I just became like a Queen fan. Well, I was already a Queen fan, but then I became a Roy Thomas Baker fan. And then when the first Cars record came out or, you know, he did a record. God, I forget what band he, he did a record with a Southern rock band, but twisted it so much that it was almost like insane. And they were like kind of your standard boogie band. Okay. I got to remember the name of the record, but I, I, I love, that was the only record of theirs I loved. And because it was so twisted because of his production. Oh, cool. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I kind of got started loving music. And, um, and then ultimately my second year of college, I was kind of not really feeling it. And then I was lucky enough to get a, um, interview at the record plant in New York, um, as like a cleanup guy, tape librarian. And they, yeah, they hired me at like 19. So it was 1980. No, maybe they hired me at 20. It was 1979 that I started. You So you weren't playing in bands. Do you, did you ever, did you learn how to play any instruments at all? Um, I'm not a musician. 
So, but what I am is for, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm on resurrection song. Um, on the Mark record, I'm doing answer vocals to his, some of his like long notes. Because he didn't want to do it. And I said, Mark, why don't you do like an echo of it? And he's like, I don't want to do it. And I was like, fuck it, I'll do it. But like every now and then I'll sing on a record because the singer doesn't really want to do the harmony, you know, or I've also on certain records played percussion and certain records like figured out keyboard melodies to do. I mean, I can figure this stuff out. I'm not a musician. Wow. But I've been in the studio. I've been making records for so long that, of course, I can go up to a piano and figure out a melody. And I re- I've learned through a lot of people how to uh, watching Pete, like, for example, watching Red Cross in 1994 and the phase shifter record, watching how they wrote harmonies mm-hmm. blew my mind. And I came from L.A. on that record. And then when I was driving around in my car, whenever the song would come on the radio, I would sing a harmony to, or try to sing a harmony to it. Okay. You know I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so stuff like that has constantly been happening through the 30 plus years. So I, I heard a, a little story and I didn't hear actually hear the entire story. So I was kind of hoping you, you might be able to tell me a little bit about it. I'm not exactly sure what time period this happened, but I read that you got thrown out of your first session. Yeah. <laughs> tell me a little bit about what that's what happened in that situation. Well, you know, I'm a tape librarian. I'm 21. I don't have a lot of experience in the studio at all. And um, the first time I'm really asked to work on a session, you know, get the kid in there. It's the owner of record plant, Roy Sakala, And uh, it's in a room on the top floor. It's kind of like his mix room. It's called the mix room. And it's very private. It's got its own lounge. It's got its own thing. All the way in the back of the room, it's got one of the, it's the only room. It's got a dome that leads up to the ceiling, the roof, so you can see light. Okay. It's also a courtroom. It's the only studio in the building that had windows, so you could see, like, Manhattan. Wow. Um, but anyway, so he was mixing something, and there was a bunch of stuff set up, and I got in there early, and um, basically I, being the neat freak I was, and not realizing that he was preset. I kind of started unpatching things and I kind of took down his whole setup. And when he walked in, he pitched a fit. And then when we were trying to patch things back in, I just wasn't used to, had I not touched anything, we would just would have started and I would have kind of been okay ish, but because I couldn't really patch well or fast. And he was just like, he was already like, you know, all over my shit. Um, I remember saying that he just called the manager and he was like, call Steve Mark Antonio, who's still like a dear friend of mine. He was the assistant. Like he was two assistants. He was pretty much at that point above me by like three notches of the ladder. He was an assistant engineer, but he had trained me to be a tape library. Like, um, you know, get Steve Mark Antonio in this kid's an idiot. Get him out of here. And I just stood there like almost like crying 
And I went back to the tape library. I sat there totally like, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. I really fucked this up. I can't believe it. And then this, uh, the, the man who ran the remote, the remote truck, Dave Viewitt, he came in and he was like, what's the matter, John? And I was like, Dave, I fucked up with Roy. He threw me out of the room. I'm going to get fired. I'm never going to, I can't believe it. And he's like, John, you're going to be okay. <laughs> he's like, you're going to be just fine. I was like, okay, thanks, Dave. And he walked out of the room. And that was it. I never got fired. And, you know, I ended up assisting for Roy a bunch. And he always, you know, the thing was, I think, <clears throat> rest in peace, Roy. He was a really great guy. Um, I think with him, he, the kids he liked, he really was hard on, you know what I mean? He really tough. And, uh, I think ultimately he did like me because, you know, I did assist for him a lot moving forward when I was an actual proper assistant. I was just, I was in over my head at that point, right? you know? And, um, you know, I got called on it and I learned, you know, the great thing about like the situation with the record plant and being there for nine years, I guess, was that, you know, when you fucked up, you really learned and you rarely, you know, you didn't fuck up that. You didn't repeat a fuck up, basically. Right. You know, you did it once. You got beat on really hard mentally, you know, like, and then you just sucked it up and you just moved forward. So it was a really great. I mean, I, I, I wish everybody could experience what I did and what my, my buddy Steve did. And, you know, the, the just to put it in perspective, this is 1982 or whatever. This is back when even my parents didn't really know what the fuck I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> I went, they knew I went to a place 12, you know, 14 hours a day and I came home, but they had no idea. Like, what do you do? What are you doing? Well, I'm working on music. How, how do you do that? You know, like they just, the recording studio thing was just a concept. They didn't understand. Right. Like they just, you know, and also when you talk to people, like when I talked to friends, my friends knew I was working in a recording studio, but no one ever listened to music and thought about, you know, how it was made. They just listened to music. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was such a weird job to have. It, it's pretty much the opposite of what it's like now where everybody's an engineer. And, you know, obviously it's, it, there's no mystique anymore. It's just right there. Well, one of the, the things that I've always wondered about, because you see all these credits and you, you see all these different people with all these credits. I mean, what exactly is the difference between the, the engineer, the producer, the mixer, and the master? What what is how how do they differ in their, in their responsibilities? Well, the interesting thing is, so engineer can either be a recording engineer, mixing engineer, or mastering engineer. Oh, okay. So an engineer is touching knobs, right? Somewhere along the line. Okay. Recording engineer setting up mics, you know, kind of. In, in charge, but he's an engineer, but he's actually the recording engineer. Okay. Um, and the producer is kind of like the overseer of what's going on between the technical and the artist. Um, like on records where I'm the producer, because I come from an engineering background, I can easily wear both hats and kind of just navigate through and deal with the artist, deal with the technic, the technology stuff. Um, but there are specific producers who don't touch consoles, you okay. know what I mean? Who sit there and deal with the, you know, making of the record, the music and stuff like that. And they rely strongly on engineers. So, but, but, but so when you say the, what's the difference between an engineer, um, 
a mixer and a mastering. Well, they're all engineers. So uh, really, the the, the 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 three are the recording, the and the mixing, and the uh, master. Okay. Okay. So the recording engineer is like you're saying, setting up the mics and also and now this is the the question I have. I guess this is the one that that confuses me the most. What is the difference between mixing and mastering? Okay. So mixing to me is like um, it's like uh, being a chef or something. You have all these ingredients, you know, mm-hmm. uh, instead of, um, I don't know, instead of beef or vegetables, you have bass drums and snare drums and guitars and bass. But the idea is to take all those ingredients, put it in together, mix it up and then have it either taste good or sound good. Okay. Okay. Um, and then mixing engineers, or at least for me, what I do when I mix is I try to create a foreground background space left, right. And I just try to have it be like a, you know, like a, a painting, like depth and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and you know, you decide what are focal points in certain parts. Like when the singings, when the singer takes a second for the second intro of the song, well, I'm going to bring up the guitar or I'm going to bring up this cool bass line that the guy does. That's really cool. So you do stuff like that. I mean, obviously you try to make things sound, you know, the top end is clear. The bottom end is clear. You try to give it impact without um, um, too much compression, I guess. The, the, the thing is now a lot of people just crush the record so they sound really loud. But but there's a balance of, you know, having it sound loud but musical. Right. Okay. And I, I come from an analog space, obviously, like tape. So my, my, my feeling is I'd like it to be loud, but I want it to be musical. I want it to sound like music. I don't want, you know. I don't want you to get like a headache three songs into the record. Right. You know? But you'd be surprised that does still come around. It's, it's a, it's a crazy thing. And then the mastering engineer, I, I work with uh, Greg Calby uh, for years, like, you know, 20 plus years. And he's really honestly from like, damn that from like John Lennon rock and roll through damn the torpedoes to now like came in and war on drugs. This guy's like just still mastering great records. And all I can say about mastering engineers is the, the way the record usually works with me is when we're tracking the record, doing the recording, I'm doing rough mixes. They sound really good because I'm already doing this stuff to make it sound like a record. Okay. And then when we mix the record, I'm taking what I have and I make it sound really good because now I polish it off and I, you know, use the right reverb for the vocal or, or whatever. I just make it more fun. I, you know, okay. effects come from places. And then when I hand it to Greg, it just ends up sounding like 25% better. You know? okay. And I've, I've actually gone, like we, we just finished a record in, well, he just mastered a record for me in March. Artist on uh, Blue Elan Records, an LA label. And the artist is Roan Yellowthorn. And she's fantastic. Like, it's just such a great record. Oh, cool. Like everything about it, the arrangements, her voice, the songs, how we approached it, everything was wonderful. I liked you best with hair worn long, dancing on the street, swiveling your hips along to a four on the floor beat. Tresses combed against your head to show a widow's peak. I heard you sing long before I ever heard you speak. I heard you sing long before I ever heard you speak. So they had been me about mastering too and I said okay Greg's gonna master on March 12th no March 16th or whatever it was when we get the mastering 
let's hang out on the phone together and let's listen to the mastering and then listen to a song and then listen to the mix, my mix. And we A beat him. And you know, the mastering just sounds that much better. Wow. It's, okay. So I can't say he has a lot of top end or he compresses or he does this, he does that. He just, he does whatever he does, the way he transfers it. He, he does give it level, but also he gives it a little bit of either compression or EQ, just a little, just enough, but he's got a really great sense of doing the littlest, but making it sound the most. Okay. You know? Okay. I mean, there is some interesting things like he has like cables that sound different, you know, like $5,000 cables. Like, should I use the purple cable or the gold cable? And I've been there and we've a beat them and they sound different. I mean, it's not who. Wow. Yeah, it's, so it's real. It's, it's science. It's not, you know, it's not mystical. It's science, but every record with him, I'm very lucky with him. Every record, like I say, 25%, it could be 30%. It could be 30, but it always sounds that much better. That's okay. Okay. So that, that kind of clears it up a little bit for me, not being a musician or, or an engineer myself. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, people always ask me, why do we need to master this? And I'm like, you have to, they, we have to do it. But also mastering engineers really became a thing back when you were cutting vinyl uh-huh. because back in the vinyl days, if you know, they, there's this thing about phase, you know, if something's out of phase with each other, like, you know, if your speakers are out of phase, you have two wires. Yes. And they're out of phase, and everything in the middle goes left and right, and there's no low end. Right, right. That? Yes. Okay. Well, if you have phase issues on your record and vinyl, the grooves narrow, and the needle pops up. Oh. So back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, mastering engineers were actually crucial to the actually just getting the record on vinyl. Oh, okay. You know, see the pictures with the guys with the microscopes. They're looking at the grooves and it's like serious shit back then. I mean, now I still think it's serious shit, but I'm, I'm saying it's a different type of thing. But the, 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 I, I think honestly a good mastering engineer, you know, the thing is a good mastering engineer makes your record sound that much better. You know, I've had like guys fuck around with my records and just like, I, I've had to call them and say, why'd you roll off the bottom? And he, they were like, well, the bass drum's a little boomy. I'm like, it's a double headed bass drum. It's supposed to be boomy. Undo that. You know, like stuff like that. Like, why would you do that? Right. Right. So they can, so they can make it sound, you know, a, well, they, a yeah, no, no, it's a, but it's a big responsibility. It really is. You know, like these guys, you know, and, and luckily on that, that specific record, I had the guy undo what he was doing. But like I said to him, dude, you don't fix my record. You know, you don't have to fix my record. What I give you is what I want. You know what I mean? And yeah. even if you think it's wrong, that's kind of what we're going for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So I, I was looking at some of the credits that you, you've got. And in one manner or another, you've worked on some incredible albums. I mean, I was looking, you've worked with uh, on albums by Aerosmith. Twisted Sister, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, Cindy Lauper, yeah. Bruce Springsteen. That's yeah. now. And well, I heard a cool story about Cindy Lauper, but uh, go ahead if you're gonna throw a, a story at me. Let me just tell well, me to shut up. No, I can give you a story, but I want to. I want to. I want to um, be specific about yeah. the arc of the, the career. Those records are all I assisted on them. Because as I became the head assistant at the record plan, now this is going maybe 82 or 83, mm-hmm. when I was the, the, the main, the top assistant, it was all, like I said, I said before, the ladder. You know, you, right. you got up the ladder. 
certain people got jumped off the ladder because they couldn't deal with it. But people, you know, uh, so at a certain point, like my buddy Steve from the other story, he uh, he became an engineer. So I just moved up a little more. And at a certain point, I was the top assistant. So I got all the primo gigs. Okay. So that's how I got the Michael Schenkers, the Aerosmiths, the um, John Waite, the uh, John Cougar, um, the Bruce one. Um, yeah. Anyway, and the Cindy Lauper one. And um, honestly, it's just a matter of, you know, a being in the right place at the right time, but also be like being good enough that like, people relied on me. Like I'm still friends with the engineers. I worked on a lot of those records, like to this day, like, um, and I've been on the, like with the, with the, with the quarantining and stuff, like a lot of us have been reaching out. So I've been on the, I was on the phone with Rod O'Brien, who was good, really still like best, best friends. Uh, and he engineered a lot of the, um, Aerosmith stuff. Um, but then also Bill Whitman, who engineered a lot of the, uh, the Cindy Lauper records. And I ended up being his engineer when he started producing more. Oh, okay. I was just with him the other night. So, but, but you know what I mean? It, it, it was such a community, you know what I mean? That you just, once you got to that spot, you got all the really good gigs and I was psyched, but, but like on, on online, you'll see, I do get some Cindy Lauper engineering credits for that record. I mean, I was on the bubble at that point. I don't think I was necessarily an engineer. Maybe I took over a little bit and did some stuff while Bill wasn't there. Okay. But I I was, you know, he engineered the record for sure. Right. Now I, I heard a story about you were in the room when they started writing time after time. Yeah, how are you hearing this shit? Uh, you know, where it gets around. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do my research. I try to do my research. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. So no. Yeah. That. So that's a really good one because we. I want to tell it right. We we. So I think there's two parts of this story that are equally ridiculously amazingly real. But the first part is that I think that day we had Sly and Robbie from the Whalers oh. come in and track on a version of girls just want to have fun. Oh, like wow. a Scott. Yeah. Wow. A regular version, not a Scott version. Right. Um, and I think we tracked them all day. And I remember in the morning, Robbie walking in, with just a base, no case. And someone said to him, Robbie, where's the case for your bass guitar? And he just said something like the plane, man, the plane. And we were like, the plane, the plane. Okay. Anyway, Everybody Villachez showed up. <laughs> very strange. But anyway, so we tracked a bunch during the day and Rob Hyman and Eric Bazilian from the Hooters tracked with them on keyboards and guitar respectively. And I guess at one point we were done tracking and everybody was like, let's take a break. And Rick Chertoff, the producer, was like, okay, let's go get some dinner. So, and, and then I, you know, I was like, well, I have to um, stay and break down the drums and the bass setup because now we're going back to doing vocals and overdubs. Okay. And um, Cindy had a idea for a song. And Rob Hyman was like, yeah, I'll stick around and, you know, I'll work on it. We had the piano. And uh, I was just coiling cables, you know, like breaking down mics, breaking down mic stands. And I'm there just, you know, hammering out some shit. Yeah. And Cindy is like, I've got this idea for this chorus. And she starts singing, you know, time after time, time after time. And then I'm coiling cables. And then I hear like, I think Rob was like, 
well, how about if we do like we add a different part? And he's like, if you come, I will walk, I will be waiting, you know, and you can tell if you listen to that song that that's kind of that melody. Well, I know Rob, so I know that I can tell it's his melody. Right. You know what I mean? That's a melody he would sing. But when she's on top of it, it sounds fucking great. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm coiling cables and I'm not really just watching. I'm doing my shit because when people get back from dinner, I've got to get all set up for the next, you know, the evening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But sure enough, throughout the course of, I don't know, like an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, they pretty much wrote, I think I would want to say like 60% of the song or, you know, um, oh they gosh. came up with, you know, the, the pre-court, like you say, go, so they came up with all of that. They were just knocking around, Wow! but you know, but there was, you know, I, listen, super creative people. I mean, I remember, I remember in the control room at one point they were working on she bop and I think Rick, the producer came up with the idea of having it be like, I bop, you bop, but we, you know what I mean? Like the different alliterations yeah. or whatever that. And I thought, well, that was, that's a fantastic idea. That changes the chorus like a hundred percent, you know? It's, yeah. So my, my point is, so when you're in a room with super creative people, I mean, you're going to witness some really great shit, you yeah. know? And it, I, was just, I was a kid. I was like 23. I was like, holy fuck. Man. And, that- and, 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 and the irony is working on that record. I mean, I had no idea that would be an iconic record. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I thought it was really great, but it, and then it came out and then it was, it changed the face of music for a few years. Yeah. I mean, it exploded. I mean, you couldn't get away from it. It's just, and, and to think that she's, they were just coming up that they're already recording and she hadn't had that. She didn't have that song at all. when, when the session started, that's amazing to me. I love Dude, that kind of stuff. Dude, it's crazy. It's, it was, so, like I said, I, I didn't at the time I just, was doing my thing and it wasn't until that song. I mean, and I've heard so many covers of it since that record came out. I mean, I think it's like 35 years now, the anniversary. She was 84. Yeah. But, but, um, but anyway, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. And and I, I talk to her occasionally. She's fantastic. She's, she's so her. I see a lot of, I see her on a lot of commercials right now for skin conditions, but that's about it. Yeah. You know, she's, she's, she's doing like a lot of Broadway stuff, I guess. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah quite a bit. In fact, Bill told me this crazy story about they, they, they bailed on a benefit in Manhattan in the middle of March and because they weren't feeling comfortable about the pandemic deal. And they were very lucky because we think that's a, bu- a bunch of people got sick at that benefit. So uh, they were really fortunate to bail. Uh, I don't know the details about when it was, where it was, but I, I know that he had mentioned that they were really glad that they, they thought they did the right thing because it was just too scary to do at that point. You know, I, I was talking, actually, I, I had a Mickey Berenge and, and Moose McKillop on for a little thing I'm putting together. And they were talking about how they, they think that uh, a lot of it's been spread in Great Britain from a, this soccer match that that a lot of people were at. And it just, yeah. just you know, you get 40, 50,000 people in the stadium and... Well, it's, I mean, it's, this is why, you know, so we're in Raleigh and I mean, I'm not going to get super political, but the, the guys, the guys out there like yesterday in our, in our, you know, our city hall or whatever, the governor's, um, uh, you know, the, the, the guys downtown basically, uh, who are all protesting. I mean, they're kind of asking for trouble. I mean, they're not, a lot of them aren't wearing masks. It takes one person 
the cough, it's in the air. I mean, it does spread. I mean, that's why it's a pandemic. So yeah. I think you really got to, if you don't respect science and the, 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 the bigness of it all, I think you're asking for trouble, you know? Yeah. yeah Cause because you may not contract it, but you can be a carrier. So it, it you know, you, you got to yeah. think about everybody else too. And then you can give it to me. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want that. Former junkie, uh, chain smoking, uh, heroin abusing, uh, you know, what? No, just kidding. I think, you, I was going to say, I think at this point you might be immune to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. There was that meme going around that it's not as funny now that everybody's dead, yeah. but there was a the meme about I'm, um, I'm, 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 I'm immune because I used the CBGB's bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's that it was funny like a month and a half ago. Now it's not so funny. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the nineties cause we moved on and, and you know, I just had Mark Lanigan on and, and he's one that mentioned I should, I should talk with you. And oh, so I definitely wanted to find out a little bit more about you becoming more of a, a I guess you're, were you more of an engineer with, with Dino Jr. and Screaming Trees? Or did, you, did you produce? Um, Screaming Trees, I was, um, I was, with, let's put it this way. With both bands, I was an engineer with benefits. Okay. You know what I mean? Like uh, on the Screaming Trees, Don Fleming produced the records. He right. definitely oh, right. was a producer. Um, did I help out a little extra? Yeah. You know, but do I, does, but who was the producer? Don Fleming. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and the same thing with Dino. I mean, with Dino, I, I feel like I did help out a little extra. Um, and then we all got along, but I mean, you know, Jay obviously was producing the records. I mean, you know, we, we always joke around, uh, uh, I guess it was, I guess the joke was with Thurston, but then I, I could transform it to Jay too. It was like, yeah, I ever said, Hey, you know, this song could use a bridge. You just punch me right in the nose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I, there's no, there is no way to tell Jay Maskus anything about songwriting or production or anything like that. Right. You know? <laughs> But anyway, but the, but the point is, yeah, so if, if my credits are accurate on those records, it's engineer. Right. Which is fantastic. Um, but, but once again, I do think the reason why eventually I started getting production credits is because a lot of the record company and managing type people realized I was doing a little more than just twisting knobs. Right. Um, but, but, the but the weird thing about that, and we can go back to the nineties if you want, but I wanted to say this yeah. interesting story is once I started getting, um, um, like production gigs, it took me about one or two records to learn that I really had to be more of a producer. Okay. You know what I mean? I had to really kind of step it up. You okay. know what I mean? At, at the end of the day, I was like, I don't really necessarily think i produce this record the way I should, you know what I mean? I, I needed to do more okay. and I kind of had to learn to do more. Right. Yeah, the, the whole, the whole, the whole career is basically learning, learning to do more and be better 
at whatever. You know what I mean? It's like. Now, some of the work you did with, with Dino Jr. is incredible. And one of my favorite tracks, and I know you had a part in this, is the song they did on the Judgment Night soundtrack, Missing Link with Del the Funky Homo oh. Sapien. Did you like how I spike the ball? Despite your all, you can come bite a small portion. There's more in the vault. Vault, have a vault. I alter your brain, kind of binge. Yeah, it's my fault. I just stay out of blitz. A word's hers, the P, damn P. The speech with you need to face. I'll just be no sympathy. Never flow sympathy. Cause you have to be the truth, the truth. And nothing but the truth. I tell it to the youth. I'm telling them the truth in the print. Wouldn't you like to know? Oh. That that whole album is incredible to me. The way they they combine rock and, yeah. and, and rap like that, fantastic. How was that session? Like, what, how, that had to be amazing to watch those guys work together. Uh, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> we we did it. I think we did it. In, well, we did it in L.A. At, at this place in the Valley called NRG, which was a fantastic studio. Um, and um, yeah, watching Jay Jay and Dell uh, kind of you know deal with each other and work together was uh, fantastic. You know, Jay laid down the drums first, and then some of the tracks, and then Dell came in and did his thing. But, um, but the funny story about, um, um, that specific track was that, um, you know, Dell at one point wanted to do a mix himself to show us what he thought it should sound like. Okay. <laughs> okay. And Dell was hitting the, you know, the, the, the weed pretty hard. I mean, <laughs> it was like 24 seven. It was so and funny and believe me i'm no luddite i mean i'm not like you know but but i don't at work i can't i can't do anything like that at work because i'm you know the knobs get weird and yeah. things sound funny and yeah. so we're back and he's doing this mix and he's like check this out and he hits play and it's like vocal and snare drum there's like no guitars oh. and we're all me and jay and mike johnson are looking at each other like <laughs> we got problems we got a problem here <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> so we had to get around that. Um, and we did. We ended up getting it. You know, I ended up kind of taking back the mix. And I think we kind of basically just waited until, you know, he kind of fell asleep. Yeah. You know, in the control room. And then we mixed it really fast and got the hell out of there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's what the song ended up being. Oh, now, that song is incredible. It's my favorite track off that album. I, I still listen to that record. I it's, do too. It's, did you ever see the movie? Yes. The Jeremy the Piven. Too. I liked it. I was a huge Dennis Leary fan back in those days, so I had to watch it. So yeah, I, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that was that was um like college years for me. So, you know, I was big into Screaming Trees and, and Dinosaur Jr. and Pearl Jam, Sonic Youth, all, all the bands on the album. And yeah. uh, it was it, it was just a, and I had never heard anything like that before with the the combining of the rock and the rap. Yeah, well, the collabs also whoever figured out the collaborations deserves like a ton of credit because yeah. they really, you know, they put real like, the teenage fan club one is great. I think it was yeah. the teenage fan club and Degla Soul. I yes. forget which. Yep. So good. Onyx and Biohazard, Faith Faith No More and Booyah Tribe. That was a that another body murder. That's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, it was really, it was a fun record to be a part of. And, um, it was a fun experience. We've had some, that was a wacky experience, obviously. <laughs> now, so Jay didn't really have any input under who he worked with for that? What do you mean? Did, so he didn't get to choose uh, who, you know, who the rapper would be that they were pairing him with? I have no idea how that went down. Oh, okay. They just hired me to engineer, and I did. I don't yeah. know. I don't know the details. If I if I said anything, I'd be remiss because right. I don't. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how that went down. Oh, okay. So, and you also did another soundtrack song that I have who love, Screaming Trees version of Darkness, Darkness. Yeah. Was it, was it the Youngbloods that he did that first? I have to Google it. I think so. But either way, I, it's, it's, it's one of my, it's my favorite track off that soundtrack. That soundtrack didn't have a whole lot on it besides the score, but that and right. Living Color. Uh, yeah. That was just a awesome. Yeah, we, we mixed that one after the fact. And uh, those guys weren't even around. I think it was just me and the manager and the record company guy. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, it was so awkward. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was fine. Um, but, yeah, no, it was interesting. And I think maybe the only reason, maybe Mark insisted I do it only because, like, at that point, we had this thing where I really was getting a vocal sound for him that he really loved. And like, I would get phone calls from him. What kind of mic do you, you use on my vocals? You know, U87. Okay. You know, through compressor. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but I think that was part of the reason why they just, they didn't go to like a, a big shot guy, you know what I mean? Or just another guy or right. girl. Back then it wasn't really girls, whatever. I don't want to go into that. Right. That's a tan. You don't need to go into it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now yeah. you mentioned that, you know, Mark is one of the, one of the few guys that really can, can give you the goosebumps when you sing, when he, he sings, not you. I mean, maybe, maybe you, you get goosebumps when you sing too, but. If I'm reading this right, you did do one-off sessions with Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger? So, yes. So, Mick Jagger, um, I assisted on a, an extra version of the, the, the song Hard Woman from his first solo record, record. And what they did was they did a special video for it. It was like an animated video for MTV. Okay. So, we went in and re-recorded the whole version. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and I think that was, I believe it was produced by Rick Chertoff, the Cindy Lauper producer, and Bill Whitman, my mentor, uh, engineered, and I was the assistant. But um, my favorite um, part, well, my one of my best memories of that session was while we were doing the basic tracks. So the basic tracks are basic tracks. It's your, you know, your band, mm -hmm. and drums and bass and guitars and whatever the foundation of the track is going to be. Okay. So we're doing the basic tracks and then, uh, Mick was out there. Um, Mick was out there, um, singing. And at one point, Bill, the engineer soloed the live vocal mic and Mick wasn't singing and you hear drums and you know, all this like ambience in there. And then the second verse comes and Mick stands up to the mic and he starts singing and you don't hear any leakage. It's like all his voice. His voice was so powerful. Wow. That once he started singing, there was nothing else in the mic. It was, and he, well, he wasn't like distorting the mic or anything that he was that close or anything like he is just, 
the way he projected was unbelievable. I, I, I still to this day is like, you know, he's an iconic singer anyway. It's not, you know, yeah. but the fact is like just hearing how great a singer and how great his technique was, was fantastic. So anyway, that was a, a great memory. And then just him sitting on the, on the console with his arms around his waist, with his legs, um, with his legs crossed, listening to the track and going like, Oh uh, yeah. Like Mick Jagger would do. Doing that rooster. We all, he walked out of the room and we all just were like, holy shit. I can't believe he just, he, that's fucking Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, and that's, see, that's a, one of the cool things that most of the people who listen to him don't ever get to hear. Even if you go see him live, you know, you, you can, you can kind of get how great of a singer is, but if you're in that just small space with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, everybody know everybody knows he's a great singer, but we we heard the technicality of it, like exactly. the, the evidence, like the you know just his technique is so crazy. Um, and there's a there's a bunch of uh, stories about, for example, John Lennon, who was a great singer, obviously. But there's a story that I've heard a couple of times. I can't corroborate it as being true, but I've heard it from reliable sources where John would cross his mouth with his hand when he popped peas. So, so he wouldn't pop the peas into the mic. Oh, wow. So he would just, I, you can't see me, but I'm moving my hand across my mouth from one side to the other. And I've heard that he used to do that with peas and sometimes with S's to cut down the sibilance. Wow. And I mean, if that's true, which I think, like I said, reliable source, I mean, that's amazing that these guys have this kind of, they're able to sing great, but also take their technique is just so fantastic. That's, I'd never heard that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, back in the analog days, by the way, you know, now with Pro Tools, I could just, if there's a P that pop, I just go in there, I roll off the bottom and that we're fine. Yeah. You know, on tape, you can't do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's there. You can get rid of it somehow, but it's a lot more fucking work. Yeah. So that's why a guy like John Lennon is totally right in doing that, you know? That's... So anyway, so the Bob Dylan story is very simple. Um, when he got the Lifetime Achievement Award for the Grammys, I think it was in 88, but I'm not sure, maybe 90. I think it was 88. They decided to use a track, um, Series of Dreams, which is a fantastic song, which, you know, we, I was just amazed that they didn't put that on the record. It's so great. Yeah. But we did a remix of it. So on that one, I think I co-mixed with Bill and it was the same team. Rick Churdor produced it. Uh, Bill uh, mixed it. I mixed it with Bill. In fact, I did some remixing without all of them because they were all like a week later on a different session and Bob wanted to use a different first verse lyric. So I had to go in there myself and work on it. But Dylan wasn't there, which in a way, I mean... Dylan is one of those guys that always scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, I think I, I, look, I look up to him so much that I don't know if I could get into a room with him and not piss my pants. You know what I mean? Yeah. He'd, be like, he'd be like, hey, John. And I'd be like, all of a sudden I'm old. <laughs> Just because I'm so fucking scared. Yeah. So, I mean, he really, I mean, I, you know, um, whatever. Like, just there are songs, there are songs of his that just make up my, you know, my part of my DNA. Oh, it's exactly. like, yeah. So, You've done a lot of work with uh, new bands and some DIY bands. You know, bands like Drive By Truckers. You know, they they started off doing their own stuff. Southern Rock Opera, one of my favorite albums of all time, did it themselves. When you get a new band or, or a big DIY band in the studio, is it hard for them to take production cues? Uh, 
when you have to, uh, let's say you have to, you know, you you, you think of, uh, you want to change the arrangement a little bit. Is it? it do, do you find that that a lot of band, a lot of new bands are open to it, or are they kind of set in their ways? Like, no, what do what do you know? Um, I've, I've only maybe had one or two over the past gazillion years, or let's just say, let's just say in the last ten years, um, I've only had one or two artists who kind of fought back and it was only in both cases because of the love of the demos. You know what I mean? When you get, too, you get too close to your demos that maybe, you know, release the demo. And I'm not saying this sarcastically. I'm like, you know, release the fucking demos. If that you really love them that much and that's how you feel like the record should end up sounding like, well, you have the demos. Yeah. Um, but, but that's happened a couple of times. But but not really that bad. I mean, I, I feel like um, a lot of these um, um, younger artists or whatever artists that I'm working with, they kind of welcome it. And I also am very um, I'm very specific in not being a my way or the highway guy. OK, but I will I will give you know, like I, my, my typical thing is I get a demo of a song and I'll just listen to it. I'll chart it out like the, the structure. And then I'll just do a bunch of ideas, changes. And, and then I'll just email the artist with all the bullet points. And, you know, I'll say, you know, if there's something you don't agree with, that's fine. Let's talk about it. If, if it's something I think structurally really is a problem, I'm going to push for it. But I'm not, you know, it's your record. Yeah. But, you know, like singer-songwriters, when they send me demos, like every song just starts on the vocal. You know, and it's like, well, maybe you could have an intro because they don't have the patience, you know what I mean, to put an intro in because it's about them. They want to just start singing. Right. You know, that doesn't always make a great song. You know, the intro is to set something up or, or you know, a guitar melody, you know, a different section of an intro, you know, like just. Yeah. So there's things like that. And, you know, my, my, my thing about the whole Steady, which, you know, they were so fantastic to work with. I love those two records. I kind of looked from the outside in and saw what their patterns were. And I kind of just helped shake up the patterns. And I remember just saying like little, little things, not, you know, not in any negative or douchey way, but like little things like, you know, well, you know, how about it's not a chorus unless you could sing a harmony on it. Think about that. Like that's what chorus should be like little things like that. And then we took that. And I remember I was very, um, how do I say it? I was very much about the bridges with them. Like, like certain songs, I wanted them to add like the third section or the fourth section just once to break it up and make it, you know what I mean? Like it needs something else. Okay. Let's add a bridge. And I'm not, they didn't do that on every song, obviously, but, but I mean, where we did it or where they did it, um, it really, you know, to help develop and with the, with the new kids recently, it's been, or the younger kids or the artists I've been working with releasing, it's been fantastic because they all love it so much. And I, I, I also make it fun. So it's not necessarily, you know what I mean? Just like me telling them what to do, but it's, yeah. I, 
ideas and, and interesting ideas. And, and, and then we just have fun realizing it. So uh, it's it, the 2020, apart from, the, you know, obviously the pandemic, which shut everything down up until March, I was involved in four really fantastic records. And, oh, wow. um, it, and, and, you know, we'll see when any of these come out. Well, and when you, you bring a, you know, your sense of humor to it, it's, it you know, it's, it, it kind of helps to me, it would help loosen me up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I've been in the other situations where I visited sessions that were super tense. And honestly, that sucks. I don't want to visit that. I don't, I don't want to be sitting there 12 hours a day like tense, like hating everybody in the room. I, you know, but if, if I did that, I would spend more time with my family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you're forced to. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. So have, uh, I've got a question. It's kind of... I want to ask it in, in two different ways, I guess. Have has there been a project that you've turned down that you've regretted turning down? And on the converse, have you been involved in a project that you regretted taking? I have. Perhaps I should have emailed these to you beforehand. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm weighing the diplomatic way of dealing with this. Um, right. Oh, well, I got a, I got an interesting 90s story that um, I regret my decision, but I think I made it at the time on a really, um, you know, on a solid basis. Um, but, you know, at the point when I was working a lot with Don Fleming as his engineer, he had done previously Bandwagon-esque, the, the uh, Teenage Fan Club record, yes. which uh, quite honestly is one of my favorite records from the 90s. I mean, I still love that record. It's top five maybe top 10 of all my favorite records. Okay. I and mean, that's, there are so many records, but that one really means a lot to me. It really does. I love them. I love their harmonies. I love their songs. But anyway, they were getting ready to do the next record, which I think ended up being 13, they called it. And then Don was producing it. And then obviously I was going to engineer and I was over the moon, over the moon, over the moon. And then Michael Beinhorn called me and he had a band called Hammerbox from Seattle that he wanted me to engineer. And I really liked Michael and I'd worked with him a couple of times, some really cool records. Um, and, um, I turned him down and he, I won't say he got mad at me, but he was not expecting me to say no, Yeah, which was not a great business move on my part. So I uh, just, this is part of, I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Having a 15 year old daughter is, is somehow my computer is sitting in a pool of water all of a sudden, oh, no. which I don't really understand how that fucking happened. Yeah, I think I'm okay. Anyway. Um, so, so I turned him down. That did not go well. He was very upset. Yeah. Um, I did not work with him again. And then Teenage Fan Club decided to do the record themselves. Oh. So I ended up losing both gigs. And oh. that was kind of a bummer. So I, oh, that one really hurt. Yeah. Um, there, you know, there's a couple... Like, like there's the trend going on now um, in, in, in mixing 
where the artist will, or the manager of the artist will, or the record company will basically send you an invitation to do a test mix for a record. Like here's a song. We're having eight people mix it. We're going to pick the best one. And then he gets, he or she gets to do the entire record. Oh, geez. And uh, the way I deem it is I'm not really into competitive mixing because I feel like everybody has their own style and who's to say my style is better or worse than her style or his style. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just don't like the idea of it. And I've tried a couple, I've gotten one, I've lost a few, but I decided that when that happens, when I'm mixing on those kind of scenarios, I'm not really mixing the way I mix. I'm mixing like, you know, I'm not mixing creatively. I'm mixing like trying to get the gig. Right. Right. I'm not doing things I normally would do. So I decided to, um, to just say no to those requests. And there've been some artists that, you know, it would have been good to work with, but I, I just, I don't like the idea. And honestly, it's so random. Like, you know, um, somebody's mix could just be louder, you know, somebody could do a mix and then master it and send it. And it just sounds better. I mean, so he gets the gig or she gets the gig. Yeah. So there is that there's a couple of artists that I, that I've, uh, I've refused to do test mixes on. I think the national was one. I just, to me, uh, that's, this is not why I make records. You know what I mean? I, I really, I cherish at this stage, I got to say, I cherish working with, like I worked on this Roan Yellowthorn, this, uh, this woman's record. Um, she's 30. Uh, it's going to be her first, well, it's going to be her second full length, but this one's a little more realized, okay. but, um, you know, we really did great work on that record. I mean, God, the arrangements, she sent me just piano and vocals, you know, doing the chord changes and we made them into songs and the arrangements are fantastic. Her voice is beautiful. Oh. She's another one with the chicken skin or the, you know, yep. like she hit this one song called unkind, which I love. And in the pre-chorus going into the chorus, she hits, she sings a melody of one line, which might be one of my favorite melodies like I've heard in the, like, it's just beautiful wow. the way she moves up. And I, every time I hear it, I'm like, ah, you know? Oh, but, wow. I'm not gonna waste my time chasing you. You'd only drag me around. I'm not gonna waste my time, waste my time, waste my time on you. I'm not And now at the end of the day, two months later, we FaceTime yesterday for her, her older kid's birthday. And my daughter Bella wore the unicorn mask and we sang the kid happy birthday. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when uh, I'd, I'd rather be in those scenarios, you know, where we're working with younger kids, but you're helping them do something fantastic. And then, you know, then they're going on and, you know, I can only make the record. Then you hand it over to the label and they have to really do their thing. But with records like with hop along or, Waxahachie where you do the record and it does really well. And then they get propelled to do good stuff. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a great feeling. It's a great feeling to help people get to the next level. Now, talking about mixing, I do have a question for you and, uh, I know vinyls making yet another comeback. Um, right. 
Do you have to change the way you mix things based on the format it's going to be released in, whether it's vinyl or digital download, CD, even cassette? I mean, does does the final end usage of it influence how things get mixed? No, because I think at this point I've been doing it through originally vinyl, then CD, then you know MP3, then uh, listening through the phone, listening to the shit device. You know what I mean? I've gone through that all, and and I, honestly, I just I feel like I know when it sounds good to me, and then Greg puts his magic on it. It's going to sound great everywhere. Oh, cool. And, and, you know, I, I, every now and then I'll pull out my phone just to hear something really quick as a reference and I'll listen to a song on my phone and, you know, it's like, gee, uh, okay. Snare vocal. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's all the same. Those are the frequencies. Yeah. But, but, but the thing is, no, I, I, I don't anymore. And, you know, I, see, it's funny. I used to really. In the '90s, I was a, a car reference. Uh, let me—I got to go listen at home. I got—I got to send the first mix to Greg. He'll listen. He'll let me know what he thinks. And now it's like, it sounds good. Let's just let's roll. Yeah. You know, I, I really—I think I feel like I'm very comfortable. I, I will say what I do do in the studio. My my quirk that I still do, which drives every one of my either assistants or engineers crazy, is whenever I start a session. My monitor reference, just to get tuned into the monitors, is the Dino song "Get Me" from oh, Way You Been. Yes. Be- very open and I could just sit there and listen to the speakers and then I can tell what the frequency response of this, of the speakers of the room is because I'm not even saying that song is perfect top to bottom frequency wise. It isn't, but I know what's wrong with it. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. So, so when I listen to the low end in the room on that song, I know it's like, okay, it's got a, the room has a little more low end than I'm used to because you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I, I just know the song so well. Okay. Um, so I do that. That's my, that's the last kind of nutty thing I do. Now it's, I saw you did recently, uh, produce an album for an Olympic snowboarder. Oh, Pat. Yeah. That was fantastic. That was a, I saw that video on YouTube. That's a neat little video. Dude, he is. And you know, it, it's so funny. And, and by the way, that was the last, time I saw Lanigan face to face. Oh, really? Because he was playing in Luzane while we were working. And then we went to the show and then he dedicated no easy action to me. Oh, nice. Kids were like, what the fuck? And then we waited at the end and hung with him. And it was fantastic. That's one of my favorite tracks here. I love that song. Oh, God, he's so great. I love him anyway. But, um, <laughs> no, the kid, they reached out to me, the kid reached out and, um, I kind of didn't really, focus on the snowboarding thing until I got there and realized like the one night there's the studio. So we tracked in his house and I mixed back here in the States. But, um, one morning I woke up, went down to the control room and a bunch of like the, I, the like Olympic official guys were taking his blood, like giving him the mandatory. The, the, I was like, what the fuck? He's like, yeah, I got to get a blood test every like three months. Wow. And so they, they surprise him. They just show up. Oh my gosh. 
It's severe. But no, he's a super talented guy, wrote really cool songs. I think I think he was inspired by the Kurt Vile records and Those the Phosphorus record. Those are amazing. Yeah. So I think he that was his zone, you know. He really wanted that kind of vibe. And it was fun. I really like you know, I like working there. We had a great time. I mean, I lived in their house. Um the, the all the kids the kid the kids in the band were great. Um the parents were really nice. We had dinners with the parents every night. It was it was a wacky, it was, I felt like I was an exchange student. Like <laughs> <laughs> world's oldest and dumbest exchange student. <laughs> oh my God. But they were surprised. That's, so tell me a little bit about this podcast that you're doing, Gear Club. How did that get started? So when me and my lovely wife Sharon got married in 2003, um, my best man was my brother Tony and my groomsman were uh, Stuart Lerman, who's an old, old buddy of mine from the 80s. He's a producer, too, fantastically talented guy, great musician also. And Greg Calby, who's a mastering engineer that I've talked a lot about yeah. on this podcast. Um, and they had not met, they hadn't really known each other that well at that point in 2003. Well, after that, we became the groomsmen. We started golfing, we'd have dinners, we'd hang out, we'd go see shows together. And one night, my brother Tony said, and this is about three or four years ago at a dinner, you know, my brother said, you and Stuart should do your, do a podcast. And I was like, you know, we were like, what are you fucking talking about? We're so busy. We got, you know, like we don't have, he's like, you guys should do it. You guys are really funny together. You know, your banter's great. You yeah. really accomplished both a lot in your careers. You know a lot about making records and all this stuff. You should do a podcast. We're like, no way. And it was like, he kind of badgered us a little bit. And then, you know, a couple months later, he basically said, look, I'm send you guys into the studio. We're going to record just you guys talking about music and we're going to see how it goes. I think it'll be fantastic. We're like, OK. So he basically set it up. We did it. He did some edits and he sent it back to us. And it was actually very cool. And through that, you know, we got my daughter, Bella, who you met who, to do the intro. Oh, awesome. And the little the little blurb in the beginning is literally that first day when my wife, Sharon, called while we were doing recording and I had this whole conversation with her and she's totally making fun of me because, you know, the shit I do is boring, <laughs> you know, she's like, I bet it, I bet it's thrilling. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's fucking thrilling. In fact, my career is thrilling. It's really fucking thrilling. <laughs> so anyway, so we started doing it. We, 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 we've tweaked the format a bunch, but you know, we've had really fun ones. I mean, Kurt Vile was fantastic. He's so much fun. Uh, Adam from the war on drugs was great. Patterson's was wonderful. Yeah. So we've had artists, We've had um, uh, classic producers like Tony Visconti, Jack Douglas, uh, great engineers like Kevin Killen. Uh, I'm going to leave out somebody and someone's going to get mad. But, you know, we had I had a segment I did solo at Camp Fuzz last year for, with Dino where I just inter interviewed the three Dino guys. Oh, wow. Uh, that was a side one, but we decided to put it out as Gear Club anyway. Um, and we, but we've even had like um, – you know, we've had like my buddy Josh is a photographer who took a lot of the iconic Beastie Boys and Clash pictures in the 70s. And oh, yeah. Just neighbor, a good friend. And we had him on because we thought it would be fun and he was great. And uh, my buddy Bill Burrs is like the the Hall of Fame uh, radio promo guy from the 90s and zeros. Oh, you know, cool. Slash and the Strokes and Foo Fighters and, you know, just a million bands. We had him on. It's it's a loose format, but honestly, it's just us fucking around. You're not fucking around. We're asking questions. I'm like, the, the dynamic is like Stuart's insightful. 
and really, you know, ask really wonderful questions. I make fun of Stuart. I'm kind of a smart ass. And then every now and then the guest talks a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's very good. Those are the best kinds, but it's very loose. That's, those are my favorites. Apparently, and I don't remember some of these digs, but apparently a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine emailed me the other day and said, dude, just listen to the last podcast. You, you, someone was talking about a high def room. And I guess I turned around and I said, yeah, that reminds me of Stuart. He puts the deaf in high def. <laughs> Like, I, don't, I have no recollection saying that, but that's the kind of shit to say. And every, they thought it was really funny. So, whatever. So, how can people listen to the show? What, where is that? Um, I mean, I think it's everywhere. I think it's on iTunes. I think it's on. Um, you can listen. You can stream it just through GearClub.com. Uh, com. Okay. Uh, Clubpodcast.com. It's pretty easy to find. I mean, Gear Club is basically Gear Club. If you Google it, you'll find it pretty good. But we also have an Instagram page, a Facebook page, and all that bullshit. Um, awesome. But honestly, it, it's a wonderful thing to do. In fact, my brother's got us doing Zooms um, once a week. We did one with my mentor, Bill Whitman, and the two guys from the Hooters, Robert Eric. And um, um, it's just it's just fun to do. Today, we're going to do one with Kevin Killen and... Um, Tony and Lenny from the Patty Smith group. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. So, but, but basically, so it's, that's just because it's easier to do, you know, it's fun to do the zooms and, and I guess we'll record it for future. But, but what I was going to say is it's a wonderful thing to do. And honestly, it's just me and Stuart just get together. We do it in person. We invite the guests down and then we hang out for an hour or two. And honestly, once we're done with the interview, my brother Tony and, you know, he does all the editing and he kind of deals with all this stuff. So, you know, you were saying you're a one man show and you, you do everything. We're kind of lucky because like we just, you know, <laughs> wash our hands and we're done. It's like I've never, believe me, never in my life have I ever felt like the talent. <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm the talent. It's a nice feeling. That's awesome. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, so before I, I wrap up, I really appreciate you spending so much time with me today. No problem. Who have you been working with that we need to keep an eye out for? Okay. So the one that made it out in time before the pandemic is a band called Warriors. Okay. It's a woman, Lauren Denizio. She's from New Jersey. She lives in LA. Four-piece band. She's got a beautiful voice. She writes great songs. And it's like, I think it's a 10-song it's a record where every song is just super cool. Okay. You know, she's just great. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, I hate... Um, you know, saying, oh, it's pop punk, it's this and that, because it's, I don't know. But it's its guitar-driven, but great melodies. She's got a beautiful voice, and the lyrics are really great, too. It's like, it's you know, it, it's just a really, uh, it, it's a wonderful record. Um, so I, that one you could uh, Spotify. a record uh, for clap your hands say yeah uh, at the middle to end of last year and that's honestly I, I, I just think it's because of the climate right now it's not going to come out for a while but um, but that's fantastic and he's so fucking talented and I've been a fan of that's Alec from the band he's the main guy 
But that record is something to look out for because it's really adventurous, beautiful arrangements, really interesting strings. And, you know, it's it's basically the as cool, but the opposite of the Warriors record. You know, okay. because it's not, you know, it's not guitar, bass and drums. It's all kinds of different things. But the songs are wonderful, too. He sings the shit out of that song. And this year, um, you know, basically, I, so I did a wonderful record with a female singer named Lawrence, Lauren Stevenson, who, congratulations, just had a baby in February. They, they got the baby out just before the pandemic. Wow. That's, I know, crazy. And that record is wonderful. She just has a beautiful voice and sings great. What's great about this record is some of the songs are in a key where I swear she reminds me of, like, classic Stevie Nicks. Oh, wow. Trying to sound like that at all. She's just singing, but it's beautiful. Out from the tunnel you walk all the throngs of bulbs surrounding you like golden laurels. You chalk your hands and you clap clouds and There's a couple of acoustic songs. There's a couple of mid-tempo. There's like, you know, whatever. It's it's very organic, but yeah. great. There's a couple of rockers, too, that are fantastic. Okay. So her record is fantastic. I told you about Roan Yellowthorn. Yes. Of this woman. Her name is Jackie McLean. She's unbelievable. I, I, I am so proud of the record we made together. And I went back and looked at my notes the other day, and it was like, I just can't believe we went from piano changes to reference vocal to just this beautiful record. Wow. Um, I'll give you a couple of others. Oh, the Courtney's from Vancouver. Um, okay. Earth pop, very teenage fan club, um, kind of um, uh, inspired like arrangements, three piece female, really great. That was fantastic. And, I, I, and that's on a record a label called flying nun. Uh, that okay. one hasn't been mastered yet, so I'm not sure when that will be out. And then um, I mixed a, a record for a really awesome band called The Nude Party, some 20-plus-year-old 20, 20 dudes, uh, and that's really fun. It's, it's, um, it's basically, it, remind, it feels like all those great records that we loved in, like, the 70s and stuff, like a little oh. Stone Times, a little this, but really just, once again, not copping their shit, but just loose and fun, great melodies, really great performances, just a fun record. Oh, that's awesome. I tell you what, like in a year, a lot of people are going to be talking about these guys because they, and even I've seen them, I've seen people, I know people have seen them live and they're fantastic. Oh, so, maybe we should get so, them on the podcast. Yeah, no, they're real. There's, there's like eight of them. So be careful. <laughs> you might want to get them on a zoom because yeah. it's a lot of them. <laughs> and then it was funny when they came for the mix in like early March, March 2nd, it uh, like at one point it was like a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock or 11 and it was me and Jeremy, the assistant. And then an hour later, it was like a fucking party. There was like 12 people. In the room. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. The mix, the, the sound of the mix changed. There were so many people in the room. It was like, wait, where's all the low end? <laughs> oh so yeah. That, that's, I, I think that's pretty much what I got. Um, awesome. Um, but, but, it, but I feel like there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of good stuff. And, and like I said before, I'm really uh, cherishing working with the kids because I feel like 
You know, they're just so much fun. And I guess it's also because, you know, I have a 31 year old daughter that I'm not, I know, you know, I'm comfortable with the kids and I know that you're, you're right. Like the joking around and, you know, not being too serious or pretentious is fucking great. So, yeah. And I think that they appreciate that too. Cause I know a lot of guys will go into the studio a little apprehensive, especially if it's their first time. So I think yeah. helping yeah. them stay at ease. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it looks like I said, my thing is I'm there all the time. I've been going into that room for like 30 years. I am not going to be miserable in there. I'm going to have a good time. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I, I, I want to look forward to going to work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, John, thank you so much for spending so much time with me, man. It, it's been a blast. Oh, it's some great stories. Thank you so much. Oh, that was great. Listen, thank you. I mean, like I said, I listened to the Mark um, episode, and I was like, this shit's good. So I was really excited like, that you asked me to do it. Oh, thank you. Go back and listen to all the other ones. I've had some really pretty cool guys, like Michael Girard came on, um, uh, mm-hmm. Alan Johannes. So he, I oh, cool. Had Al on, so uh, he, he, was, he was one of my favorites. That was a long yeah. episode. He's, yeah. one, he's one of the only guys that ever, it, when I asked to do the intro... He actually pulled out his, his cigar guitar and just actually strummed a little intro for me. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the end, my <laughs> friend. If I do that, would that bring everybody too down? <laughs> my intro's an outro. Yeah, they... <laughs> this is the end. I'm dyslexic, so there is that. They, oh, well, they, uh, that'll be perfect. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.